Welcome to the LM Medilaw podcast. Craig's Case Checker is created to keep you up to speed with the law of medical negligence, whether you're a solicitor, student, or curious observer. It's worth saying that um, this, this is quite a hot topic in um, clinical negligence as well as personal injury. Um, it's, there was a decision very recently in the Court of Appeal uh, back at the start of the year uh, of, of three appeals, uh, collectively known as Paul versus Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust. Head to our website, lndemmedilaw.com, for more information. Welcome, everyone, and, well, again, welcome to the uh, second episode of Craig's Case Checker. So uh, today's topic is going to be about secondary victims. And uh, before I start saying anything further, I want to give some credit um, to the inspiration behind this episode, uh, that being of uh, Jennifer Nicholson-White. So she is an advocate uh, with a, get this right, ampersand advocates, and uh, I, uh, I, my colleagues uh, saw her give a presentation on uh, secondary victims uh, very, very recently at a conference, which I thought was very interesting. And I felt that it would be a very good topic uh, to certainly to elaborate on. And uh, so all credit to her and um, depending, I mean, I'm not sure if we're going to add her details or anything, but uh, if you ever want to. Uh, check uh, Jenny's profile. You can find it on the Ampersand Advocates website. She's very, very experienced, very, very good uh, advocate. And I would highly recommend her if you are a solicitor listen, listening to this and need a clinic counsel to uh, to assist you. So just kind of um, getting started then. I mean, secondary victims as an area of law, is it's quite a tricky area. It's quite an unprincipled area of law. Um, and I think it's uh, fair to say that pursuers primarily don't like it very much because simply because it's a lot of the decisions have been somewhat arbitrary. Um, some seem unfair, but um, hopefully what follows from here will uh, will show you maybe why people think that way. So now it's worth saying that um, this this is quite a hot topic in um, clinical negligence as well as personal injury. Um, it's, there was a decision very recently in the Court of Appeal uh, back at the start of the year uh, of, of three appeals, uh, collectively known as Paul versus Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust, but the other claimants involved uh, were uh, Paul Muir and uh, Purchase. And each, uh, each of these cases was kind of looking at secondary victims and kind of looking at the situation where um, there's a negligent act and then the shocking event, which is one of the uh, uh, factors which constitutes a secondary victim, happens a good time after that. So what today's episode will explore in the end will be uh, what the law on secondary victims is and what's the underlying basis of that law and um, I'm hoping to get a bit of um, audience interaction, just just so you're aware. Obviously, I can't do it because it's it's, like, it's not live, so it's not that way. But it's kind of a guessing game, let's say. 
Um, so hopefully you find that interesting. But I, in, in a way, I guess it's uh, to prove the point about how arbitrary the decisions have been uh, in with secondary victim claims. So uh, keep watching if you're interested. Um, so once that's all done, we'll then move over to the decision in Paul and what its implications are going forward. So we'll start from the very beginning then. Now, I should say from the off, and some solicitors will be quick to point out that the genesis of um, the law with regard to secondary victims comes from a case uh, known as McLaughlin v. O'Brien. But I'm, I'm not going to go into that in any great detail because the in the end, the real... Um, a landmark case which outlined the law as we know it today is in uh, Alcock uh, versus Chief Constable of Yorkshire. I think that's right. Um, <clears throat> so before delving into that, I should say from the off that psychiatric injury, I mean, and this is for those who are uninitiated in this area, psychiatric injury and personal injury claims is, has developed its own unique jurisprudence. There are two categories of um, victims when it comes to psychiatric injury. There's a primary victim who is someone who has sustained psychiatric injury as a result of an injury which they've sustained or uh, from a reasonable fear of sustaining injury. So, for an, for example, if, uh, uh, okay, say, say there's someone who suffers PTSD after being in a very nasty car accident, they are a primary victim for the purposes of psychiatric injury. Alternatively, if there is a, a car, you know, winding across the road, clearly driving unreasonably, you step out onto the road, the car just poof, zooms, just misses you by an inch. And, you know, at that moment, you just had that fear that you were going to get hit. That's technically puts you down as a primary victim. Secondary victims, on the other hand, are those who um, have sustained psychiatric injury as a result of witnessing an accident or an event, um, which is cause which causes nervous shock, essentially. As I said before, it's a tricky and unprincipled area of law, but ultimately a very interesting one, as I'm, I'm hoping you'll uh, agree uh, come the end of this. So, as I say, to start, we'll look at the House of Lords decision of Alcock versus Chief Constable of Yorkshire. Now, um, this case derived from the uh, tragedy of uh, the Hillsborough disaster in 1989. And um, many of the claimants in that case were family members of those who uh, ultimately perished uh, or were injured, but they were also but also included friends. And uh, many of them uh, saw this whole thing uh, pan out on television at the time. And, um, you know, understandably, they, um, they suffered uh, psychiatric injury. Um, so... This case came to the House of Lords, and basically much of the decision was um, analysing on whether a duty of care actually existed between the claimants and uh, the defendants in this case, and to what extent that there was these claimants fell within the scope of duty of care. So, but before I go into that, I think it's actually quite important to understand what we what constitutes a duty of care in this scenario. It's, it's all very well just diving into what the court said, but unless we actually understand what they are trying to figure out in this situation, then 
you know, it just won't make sense otherwise, particularly for those of you, as I say, who are uninitiated in this area. So duty of care, bread and butter stuff. Basically, your um, your go-to authority for this uh, goes way back to the the great decision of uh, Donahue versus Stevenson, which is basically the the, the case which uh, uh, started the law of negligence as we know it today. So I will I will quote Lord Atkins' decision from this when he speaks about duty of care. He said as follows. The rule that you are to love your neighbor becomes in law, you must not injure your neighbor. You must take reasonable care to avoid acts or omissions which you can reasonably foresee would be likely to injure your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation as being so affected when I am directing my mind to acts or omissions which are called in question. So that's, that's the classic statement of what a duty of care is. Now, this particular quote does not clarify how the scope of a duty of care is determined, which is ultimately a not, not a wholly separate question, but it's a, it's, a, it's a separate factor to take into consideration when determining what a duty of care is between an injured person and the defender. Uh, but the, the, the scope question has been the subject of a lot of litigation over the decades since Donahue versus Stevenson. But what has remained consistent is this idea that when it comes to establishing a duty of care, there's got to be this, what's referred to as a sufficient relationship of proximity between the injured person and the wrongdoer. So another one, probably the, the more authoritative statements on this comes from Lord Wilberforce in the case of Anne's versus Merton London Borough Council in 1977. And he said as follows, one has to ask whether, as between the alleged wrongdoer and the person who has suffered damage, there is a sufficient relationship of proximity or neighbourhood, such that, in the reasonable contemplation of the former, carelessness on his part may be likely to cause damage to the latter, in which case a prima facie duty of care arises. So this is really important with respect to determining liability in any case. So, as I said, a straightforward example of when a duty of care arises is, uh, for instance, uh, a driver of a car has a duty to take reasonable care whilst driving. It is reasonably foreseeable that if you drive unreasonably, an accident is likely to happen, which in turn could cause injuries uh, to others. So in terms of proximity, it is within the reasonable contemplation of a driver that their carelessness can cause damage to other drivers and or pedestrians within the area of risk. So... You know, a, a driver in that situation wouldn't owe any duty of care to, say, a pedestrian who's 50 metres away, who's distracted by the unreasonable driving and walks into a pole, injuring their head or getting a bloody nose from it. From a clinical negligence perspective, as we all know, the, the duty of care is pretty straightforward. It, a doctor owes a duty of care to their patients, and it is reasonably foreseeable that negligent acts in the course of that treatment will cause harm to the patient. So taking this basic principle, if you apply that to secondary victims, now, when, again, secondary victims are people who have not actually been hurt in the accident or event, but who have simply witnessed someone getting hurt or being killed as a result of the negligent act of the defendant. 
So there's this indirect relationship there. So if you keep what I've said about duty of care in mind, you know, how does that come into play? How, how does the defendant have a duty of care to the secondary victim in that situation? It's, as I say, it's very indirect. But when you look at, when you think about it, in the end, it's quite a human reaction to, to you know, suffer some kind of psychiatric injury if you see a loved one being injured or killed. You know, uh, as I say, it's a very human response. You'd be simply horrified by that. So it therefore follows that when someone is negligent, it's reasonably foreseeable that their loved ones, upon witnessing the injury or death, would suffer shock as a result. You know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. And I think in the end, this is what Alcock basically uh, concludes. But let's go back to that decision. So in Alcock, the main findings in the case were outlined in, uh, by Lords Keith, Ackner and Oliver, respectively. So what I want to do is just have a brief look at each of their um, decisions and just uh, yeah, just explain what they, what they all uh, thought about it in the end. So starting with Lord Keith. <laughs> To his mind, the concept of reasonable foreseeability had to be invoked in this situation. Was psychiatric injury suffered by secondary victims reasonably foreseeable and was there a relevant proximity between the claimant and the defendant? So to his mind, he considered that the relationships had to be limited to certain ones, that is, ones where there's close ties of love and affection. So, to, so he he figures that the claimants have to demonstrate that they, they are uh, closely, well, not necessarily related, that, that's quite open to interpretation, but if you are related to the person who's injured, that, that makes proving close ties of love and affection fairly straightforward. Um, but he also said that not only do you have to have these close ties of love and affection, but you also need to have witnessed the event yourself in person with unaided senses. Uh, it's, either, it's either the event itself or the immediate aftermath of that event. So, for instance, if you, if the accident happens to your loved one, you come across uh, the aftermath of that literally a few seconds or a couple of minutes after it, and you see them, you know, sprawled or injured, etc. That's that comes into play. Um, importantly, for this case, he went on to say that viewing such events on television, you know didn't come into play here it uh, that didn't make you a, a secondary victim as i say you had to witness it with your unaided senses so i suppose his point with that is if you're watching on television and you know that your loved one is being injured or is dying you could simply turn the television off and avoid the injury you know so not a wholly far, far-fetched uh, argument, but I suppose that he's just trying to narrow the scope there, which becomes a fairly um, common theme uh, going through the, the jurisprudence. Anyway, moving on to Lord Ackner. To his mind, the reasonable foresee—excuse me—the reasonable foreseeability test outlined in Donahue was the appropriate one in this circumstance. So basically, that's the one I highlighted previously. However, he said that um, the, the Donahue test was the most appropriate, provided that the concept of proximity was integrated in a test. So that's referring to Lord Wilberforce's uh, comments in the Anne's case. So Lord Ackner goes on to ask the question, who was one's neighbour in this situation then? 
So to him, you had to modify the Donahue test to limit the extent of admissible claims. And considerations of this included the class of persons whose claims should be recognized, the proximity of the claimant to the scene of the accident, and the means by which the shock is caused. Now, with, res with respect to class of persons, the defendant ought reasonably to foresee that those who had close ties of love and affection with the victim would sustain psychiatric injury, just as I said before there. Um, the question, there's a different question about bystanders. Now, now these, are, these are people who have um, run and seen the accident for themselves and, um, but are not related to the person. Lord Ackner seems to leave open the possibility of a bystander uh, making a claim, but we'll not focus on that today. Um, now, with regard to proximity, um, Lord Ackner felt that the claimant had to be close to the accident in both space and time. So in other words, be there either then or very soon after witnessing the accident event or aftermath. Now, in terms of um, how the injury sustained, he, he reckons that it has to be through shock, the shock of witnessing such horror so so this has to be sustained by witnessing the traumatic event and again he reckons seen on television no doesn't apply here he is open to the exception to an exception with television and uh, he, he gave a somewhat uh, morbid example of a television um a live feed of a children's event involving them flying a balloon which suddenly bursts into flames Pretty grim, but <laughs> luckily is yet to happen, so, so as to test that. Um, now, moving on to Lord Oliver, who I would say is often seen as providing the main decision in this case. Uh, to his mind, the touchstone of liability was the proximity or directness of the relationship between claimant and defendant. So to his mind, proximity depended on the court's perception of what is a reasonable area for the imposition of liability, rather than from following a legal process of analogical deduction. So proximity in this case was a mixture of directness of perception of the events and the relationship between the claimant and the primary victim. So again, going back to this question of proximity, we're talking about what a defendant ought reasonably to have contemplated would be the outcome of their actions if they are negligent. Lord Oliver is basically saying that this has to be narrowed in these types of claims to basically being there, witnessing everything and having close ties of love and affection with the victim, the primary victim, as it were. From there, Lord Alcock then uh, went on to basically describe his five control mechanisms, which since then has become the go-to test for secondary victims. So... Number one, there requires to be close ties of love and affection and a marital or parental relationship between the claimant and the victim. Number two, the injury requires to have been caused by a sudden and unexpected shock to the claimant's nervous system. Number three, the claimant must present at the scene or arrived in the immediate aftermath. And I think that was meant to say should be present at the scene or arrived in immediate aftermath. Number four, the injury resulted from witnessing the death or extreme danger to the primary victim. And that's quite an important point for the Paul case. So 
keep in mind. And lastly, number five, there must be a close temporal relationship between the incident and the injury for which damages are claimed. Now, by temporal, he means uh, a relationship in time, a closeness in time. So that's the law as it presently stands. And um, you could probably tell that the, the case was very policy heavy. And um, in the end, it was clear from the court's reasoning that they were just looking to limit how many claimants could make, well, claims uh, arising from the tragedy of, of, of Hillsborough. And to my mind, like looking at it, the circumstances of that fateful day certainly pushed the House of Lords into a corner from a legal perspective. And in the end, they weren't able to come up with a set of principles which which could just guide everyone going forward with these cases. So that lack of principles certainly been felt since then. And um, as I said at the beginning, many of the decisions that have come after a provided mixed results, to put it uh, politely. So now before I play my little interactive game with you, um, what I'll do initially is uh, go through the facts of the cases uh, being uh, that were uh, considered in Paul versus NHS Wolver Wolverhampton. So as I said, th th this, com this case comprised of three appeals. Paul, Paul Muir and Purchase. So I'll um, I'll go through the uh, a summary of the facts and um, you'll be able to see why claims were made in the first place. So starting with Paul, Mr. Paul suffered a heart attack and collapsed when shopping with his daughters who at the time were aged 12 and nine. Um, in the course of this event, the, his daughters saw him fall backwards and smack his head off the floor. Understandably, both claimants were very distressed to the point that they actually couldn't bring themselves to call for help. They, they really struggled to make any sense. Um, both of them saw a man cradle Mr. Paul's head and his hand was covered in blood. Um, paramedics eventually came along and gave uh, Mr. Paul chest compressions and covered him with a foil blanket. And unfortunately, he died in hospital soon after. And uh, it, it was found that the cause of his um, death was an ischemic coronary artery uh, atherosclerosis, kind of a cardiac arrest of sorts. Um, apologies if that's completely incorrect. Um, but moving on from that, the defendant admitted negligence in failing to perform a cardioangiography approximately 14 months previously uh, after Mr. Paul had been admitted with chest and jaw pain. Uh, it was found that an, an angiography would have revealed that he had coronary artery disease, uh, which ultimately was what killed him. So the, the two girls made uh, claims with respect to witnessing their father die in front of them, essentially. Um, moving on to Palmier, uh, the claimant's daughter, Esme, uh, was age seven at the time. And she had been seen by her GP on the 19th of August 2014 with a history of episodes where she could not breathe and appeared pale and blue. She returned three weeks later with worsening symptoms and she was referred to a paediatrician uh, where she was seen on the 1st of December 2014. 
In January 2015, she had a ambulatory ECG monitoring, which revealed no episodes of shortness of breath. Uh, the pediatrician concluded that the symptoms were likely due to exertion and physiology. So the child was seen again on the 21st of April 2015 and then re-referred re by her GP, um, but she never made it to that referral as she unfortunately died um, before then. And um, the death was caused by pulmonary veno-occlusive disease, which is incredibly rare, uh, as I understand it. So in the lead up to that, on the 1st of July 2015, uh, Esme was due to attend a school trip, but you know that day she was feeling very unwell. Um, the claimant, uh, as in Esme's father, that is, uh, met her at the beach where, where the school was at the time and uh, noted that she looked very tired and pale. She was breathless as well. They tried to encourage her to keep walking in the hope it would make her feel better, but she was exhausted. And uh, I think a couple of times she had to stop and vomit. She was really not in a fit state, um, so much so that she was actually frightened to continue walking. And she was she was stopping very regularly. So the father uh, carried Esme back to the school and uh, tried to reassure that she'd be okay. Left the school. Um, although I should say that Esme was feeling faint by the time that they got back to the school. Uh, so he he went away. He then got a call very soon after, um, telling him to return as soon as possible. Upon his return, he found that Esme was lying on the floor with staff um, trying to provide first aid. Um, the father took over and tried to provide mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, but Esme was not breathing. Um, her mother then turned up at the school and uh, saw that she was lying on the floor having um, resuscitation um, being applied without success. And so, uh, understandably, uh, both the mother and the father sustained psychiatric injuries. And um, it was, I think it was admitted by the defendants in this case that they uh, ought to have um, diagnosed Esme's condition long before this all happened. So, and lastly, um, moving on to purchase, and I should say from the off with purchase, the circumstances here I mean, if, if the first two weren't harrowing enough, this is particularly gruesome. So I should, should add at the beginning here. So the deceased was uh, a lady named Evelyn, aged 20, who died on the 7th of April, 2013. And this was due to an extensive bilateral pneumonia with pulmonary abscesses. So on the 28th of January, uh, 2013, Evelyn had attended her GP practice with acute sinusitis. <laughs> And uh, she became more unwell in February, losing her appetite and her weight. And uh, on the 28th of March, she was prescribed uh, medications for oral thrush and a skin infection by her GP. Um, she then went on to develop a cough and uh, mouth ulcers. And so she was then taken to a walk-in clinic on the 4th of April. Um, where it was noted that she was very weak and unwell. She really struggled to even attend the appointment. Um, yeah, difficulty walking, dizziness, difficulty breathing, uh, which was rapid, shallow, and noisy. So at this clinic, she was diagnosed with respiratory tract infection with pleuritic pain, oral thrush, and depression. Uh, so she was um, prescribed antibiotics and antidepressants, and... Um, 
it was then two days later that the claimant, who was um, Evelyn's mother, she had plans to go to an event with her other daughter, um, but had contemplated staying with Evelyn just to look after her because she really wasn't well. Um, but Evelyn encouraged her mum to keep to her plans and um, told her to head off, go have a fun time. So um, her mother didn't return home until about 4.50 a.m. And uh, she entered uh, Evelyn's be bedroom to find her lying motionless on her bed with the house telephone in her hand, just her staring at the ceiling. Um, she felt her skin, which was noted to be slightly warm, and uh, she seemed to look alive, but she wasn't moving or blinking. And over the sheer shock of um, discovering this, the claimant started screaming. Her younger daughter then entered the room and also her ex-husband arrived and they were just all screaming and panicking about what they were seeing here. Uh, the young daughter was able to call 999 and she was advised to provide uh, cardio uh, resuscitation. So the mother goes in to try mouth to mouth, but as she opens Evelyn's mouth, blood and bodily fluids just spill out from her mouth and her nose. Um, to try and empty this so she can actually perform resuscitation. The, the mother tipped Evelyn's body to one side and there was just more blood and fluid spilling out. Um, she attempted resuscitation until the paramedics arrived who then took over. And um, unfortunately, she, she, she could not be brought back. And um, to, add in, to add more to this horrifying experience, the claimant then looked at her phone <laughs> and had realized that she had a missed call from Evelyn with a voice message. And it was the sound of Evelyn's dying breaths, which lasted for about four minutes and 37 seconds. And the call had finished literally five minutes before she had arrived home. And um, as a result of seeing that, the claimant ran out onto the street and just started screaming. Um, pretty, pretty horrible. And, uh, the claim which the mother was making was for the GPs neg negligently failing to diagnose pneumonia, essentially, uh, for her daughter. So, as I say, horrible situations, and you can you can see why, particularly since um, negligence wasn't really an issue in any of the cases there, why these relatives have gone in and tried to make claims. But moving on from this, on to my guessing game now. So, if you try and keep the control mechanisms of Alcock in mind, which I hope are maybe appearing on the screen, but uh, we'll, we'll see <laughs> if the tech um, uh, uh, lives up to it. Um, we're going to, what I, what I would like to do is um, kind of go through some of the, some scenarios and um, which kind of reflect previous cases. So I'm not going to, I'm going to outline briefly, just very briefly, what, what these circumstances were and just let you have a think about whether or not um, the claimant had won their case or did not. So, as I say, keeping the alcock control mechanisms in mind. So just, just, uh, just in case, I'll remind you of what those are. If you give me one moment, please, because you can probably tell I am reading from notes. So, number one. There requires to be close ties of love and affection and a marital or parental relationship between the claimant and the victim. Number two, 
the injury requires to have been caused by a sudden and unexpected shock to the claimant's nervous system. Number three, the claimant has to have been present at the scene or arrived in the immediate aftermath. Number four, the injury resulted, as in the claimant's injury, the psychiatric injury, must have resulted from witnessing the death or the extreme danger to the primary victim. And number five, there must have been a close temporal, excuse me, temporal relationship between the incident and the injury for which damages are claimed. Okay, so keeping this in mind, let's look at scenario one. So the claimant's wife suffered sick no it was the claimant wife apologies uh, suffered psychiatric injury after being told of her husband's death due to a heart attack less than an hour beforehand and uh, from identifying his body in the hospital uh, it was acknowledged that the defendant had negligently failed to diagnose the husband's heart disease for many months prior to the death so as i say very brief summary but what do you think the decision was here so if you want, you can pause the stream, uh, whether you're listening or watching, um, and how we think. Um, I'll, uh, the, the alcohol control mechanisms uh, may be on the screen. Either way, have a think. I'll just uh, wait a few seconds. Okay, so if, for those of you that concluded there was no liability, you are correct. This is the case of Taylor versus Somerset Health Authority. And uh, Justice Auld in that decision had considered whether the claimant came within the immediate aftermath principle. To his mind, it failed for two reasons. One, there was no event to which the proximity test could be applied. So the test needed an external traumatic event in the form of an accident or a violent happening. Ultimately, in this case, death was the culmination of heart disease. It wasn't an, an event with an immediate aftermath um, to which that exception could be uh, attached. So essentially what Justice Ald is saying here is that it's not enough for the injury or death to have just happened. You need to witness some kind of violent occurrence, something, some shocking event, literally before you physically. Um, and it has to have um, coincided with the negligent act. That's at least my interpretation of it. Um, the second reason was that even if the aftermath extension could apply in this situation, the claimant's discovery of it at hospital from the doctor and the subsequent identification of the body lacked the immediacy or directness required to come within the extension. So I suppose from his uh, perspective, what he's saying is, it could be that um, the husband was more or less on his way out. So it wasn't as though it just came out of nothing. Um, it wasn't sudden. It wasn't shocking in that respect. So moving on to scenario two. So the claimant father suffered psychiatric injury caused by the negligent failure to diagnose his son's bleeding kidney after a road accident. And essentially, uh, the father sat by his son's bedside as he had progressively gotten worse until he went into a coma and unfortunately passed away. Again, quite brief 
Um, you may think it's actually not enough to come to any kind of judgment, but in any event, what do you think was the outcome here? Again, think of Alcock, control mechanisms. Uh, so yeah, I'll just I'll, another another wait. Okay, so that's five ten seconds is plenty of time for all of you, I'm sure. So again, the claimant lost this one, and this is the case of. Uh, Sion, Sion, I'm not too sure of the pronunciation, and my apologies, but this was a Sion versus Hampstead Health Authority. Now, this was a decision by Lord Justice Peter Gibson, and he held that the test, uh, the Alcock test, required a sudden appreciated event, um, excuse me, sudden appreciated by sight or sound of a horrifying event which violently agitates the mind rather than an accumulation of more gradual assaults on the nervous system over a period of time. So again, that's kind of following from the previous decision where the shock has got to derive from something that's very sudden and out of the blue, as opposed to something which is, yes, something progressively getting worse, but you more or less know what the outcome is going to be, either bad injury or death. Now, Lord Justice Gibson did not agree with the defendant's submission in this case that the injury or death to the primary victim in this case uh, was not shocking. Um, nor did he agree with Justice Ald's decision in Somerset in the previous case there. Um, to his mind, and again, this is quite important for the Paul case, he saw no reason why a negligent act causing no violence or suddenness cannot lead to a claim for nervous shock, such as when there is a misdiagnosis and the primary victim very suddenly, unexpectedly dies. So his point is that the sudden event doesn't have to be the negligent act itself. Um, and in fairness with Alcock, that was deriving from an event which just happened quite quickly. Um, I mean, think of the situation of a car accident. Alcock is basically saying that if a loved one sees their, uh, say, a child being hit by a car, that's, that's the sudden event, according to Alcock. But Lord Justice Peter Gibson felt that the sudden event could actually be seeing the injury or the death unexpectedly, even if the negligent act occurred sometime beforehand. Again, keep that in mind because it's important for the Paul case. So scenario number three, an interesting one as well. Um, so the mother of a child suffered a pathological grief reaction after waking at her baby's bedside in hospital uh, when the child was having a fit and then 36 hours later dying in her arms after life support had been withdrawn. Uh, the defendant had admitted liability for failing to diagnose acute hepatitis, which led to uh, fulminant hepatic failure. So unfortunately, a, a gruesome one there. And so... Again, probably not much um, facts for you to make a informed judgment, but um, then again, some of you solicitors may remember this case. Um, but what do you think the outcome was? Again, five, 10 seconds for you to have a think about that. Okay, so the mother won this case. And this is the case of Walters versus North Glamorgan NHS Trust. Now, 
the main grounds of appeal from the defendant in this case were that a 36-hour period could not properly be regarded as one horrifying event in of itself. Instead, it was a gradual assault of the mind. So bearing in mind the previous cases that we've had here, uh, that we've discussed so far, if, if, if the death or the injury is, is occurring after some period of time after the negligent act, then many of the judgments have said that this is more a gradual assault of the mind. It's just, you see again, gradually worse and worse. It's not shocking. It's not unexpected. It's not hitting you, you know, where you're left sixes and sevens. It's, you're seeing, seeing it get worse step by step, which is not shocking to the courts, apparently. Anyway, Lord Justice Ward in this case held that the entire 36-hour event was a horrifying one from, for the claimant. And this had started with the child's fit as she awoke um, at, at, at its bedside. And I think it's worth bearing in mind here that, um, as, and I should, perhaps should have included this in the facts, but uh, what appeared to happen here was that she, the claimant had woken up to find the, her child suffering a fit. The doctors then kind of reassured her later on that everything was going to be fine, the fit had passed, no bother at all. And then the child deteriorated from there. So as you can well imagine, that's 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 shocking. That is undoubtedly shocking. If you're reassured by the doctor, which I think most people would if they're told it's going to be okay, and then the reverse happens, yeah, that, that I imagine that would be shocking. So you can maybe see why there's there was a success in this claim um, for the for the mother. So just to kind of elaborate, Lord Justice Ward held that the law permitted a realistic view being taken from case to case of what constituted a necessary event. The element of sudden appreciation of the horrifying, horrifying event found its place in the definition of shock as an aspect of the proximity which was necessary to establish liability. Uh, there had to be propinquity between claimant and defendant and claimant and event. Claimant and defendant and claimant and event. Sorry, getting mixed up there. Um, without sudden and direct visual impression on the claimant's mind of witnessing an event or the immediate aftermath, there's no liability. So that was that one. Moving on to scenario four. The claimant's mother had injured her head and left foot after an accident at work. So liability for this accident was actually admitted by the defendants. Three weeks later, the mother suddenly collapsed and died in the presence of the claimant, her daughter. Uh, as it turned out, the mother had suffered a DVT, um, deep vein thrombosis, basically a clot in your leg, which then traveled up and caused a pulmonary emboli. Um, which it was determined had actually been caused by the accident three weeks before. So not only was the injury, the initial injury caused by the accident, so was the death in the end. And uh, as a result of witnessing her mother dying uh, right in front of her, the claimant suffered PTSD. So what are we thinking for this one? What do you think the outcome was? Okay, uh, we'll give it five seconds this time. Claimant lost this one. This is the rather notorious decision of Taylor versus Novo, 
Now, the defendant had appealed to this decision um, from the first instance, arguing that proximity was lacking because the claimant was not present at the scene of the accident and so was not involved in the immediate aftermath as well. Lord Dyson looked into the law up to that point in quite a lot of detail, and it's a reason why this case is actually probably the, the go-to, well, not go-to authority, but it's the most up-to-date authority um, with respect to secondary victims. He had noted that Lord Oliver in Alcock had used proximity in two ways, as a legal concept and shorthand for the Lord Atkin neighbour principle, as we explained before, and as a control mechanism to mean physical proximity in time and space to an event. So he asked the question, were the, was the claimant and the defendant in a relationship of proximity in a legal sense? Now, to his mind, the idea of an event tended to distract one from the proper analysis. In this case, there was a single accident or event which had two consequences. And if the daughter was there at the time of the rack falling on her mother and then suffering shock from having witnessed that, then she would be a secondary victim. But to his mind, to allow recovery on the facts of the case, that is, watching her mother die as a result of the accident, albeit it was three weeks after it happened, that would be going too far. <clears throat> Why is that? Well, he considered that the claimant in that situation could recover damages if the mother had died years after the accident. So the concept of proximity to his mind couldn't possibly stretch this far. And to allow liability in this situation would extend scope of the duty of care considerably further that had uh, been considered um, appropriate up to that point. And also to his mind, there was a bit of a um, inconsistency in as much that if the mother had died at the time of the accident and the claimant did not witness the death, but suffered shock when on the scene shortly after, she would not recover damages because she was not sufficiently proximate in a physical sense. Um, it may seem unreasonable, but to Lord Ward's mind, um, Lord, excuse me, Lord Dyson, uh, Lord Dyson's mind, um, this was the perception of the ordinary reasonable person. So he also said, quite interestingly, that an event for the purposes of the secondary victim test was an accident or negligent act, not the actual injury or death which is suffered. Again, this is an important point for Paul. He, Lord Dyson went on to agree with Justice Hall's decision from Somerset that the immediate aftermath extension was an exception to the rule that a claimant could only recover damages where the accident and primary injury or death caused by it occurred within sight or hearing. So he concluded that no proximity um, was uh, present in this case, uh, given that the death had happened three weeks after uh, the shocking event in his view. So there was no recovery. And um, he went on to comment that he completely disagreed with Lord Justin, uh, Lord Justice Peter Gibson's decision in Sion with respect to what an event is. Um, now, you may think, why is this decision different from the Walters case where 36 hours had passed? 
and the mother was able to claim. Uh, Lord Dyson felt that uh, this was different to Walters because Walters involved a single event or a seamless tale. That didn't happen here. <clears throat> Scenario number five. So the claimant here observed his wife after a, a, a hysterectomy. And over the course of 24 hours, um, unfortunately, his wife deteriorated due to the defendant's negligence. The claimant had observed two specific incidents during that time. Uh, he had seen her shortly after surgery when she was connected to various machines. So, you know, you could picture that after a, after a, a big operation like that. But she was also uh, unconscious and connected to a ventilator and being administered uh, four types of anti antibiotics intravenously. Um, and perhaps the standout uh, description he provided was that his wife was all swollen and she looked like the Michelin man. So you can imagine how horrible that looked. Um, so what do you think the outcome was here? Once again, and uh, you may have noticed a pattern here, the claimant lost. So... The main issue here actually was whether or not the event was sufficiently shocking. Lord Justice Tomlinson uh, approved what um, Justice Swift had said in the case of Shorter versus Surrey and Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust, um, where it was noted that the event in question must be one which would be recognized as horrifying by a person of ordinary susceptibility i.e. by objective standards. So some people find it more frightening when they have no medical knowledge and have no idea what's going on. But on the other hand, others arm themselves with medical information in advance from the internet, which leads them to have more fear and that is justified in the circumstances. So essentially what this case was deciding was what constitutes a horrifying event has to be determined by objective standards, not subjective. So as they say, it may be that one, one claimant has a particular fear or would have reacted to a situation in a particular way and another would not have. In the end, you've got to look at it externally, what would reasonably be deemed as horrifying. So in this particular case, the judge held that there was no sudden appreciation of an event. There was a series of events which gave rise to an accumulation uh, during that period of gradual assaults in the mind. So we're back to that again. It was it was not a sudden thing. He he saw he saw his poor wife after the hysterectomy, and she just pr progressively got worse. That's not a sudden event. Now um, the last scenario, which you may or may not be <laughs> glad to hear about. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting one, and I've thrown it in simply because it's, um, it's a non-clinical negligence example of secondary victim being applied. Um, but also, again, you may, you may, think, uh, you may think about uh, why the, de the decision was reached as it was. So um, there's a mother who's heading to a sports center to meet her son. As she is walking, she comes across the aftermath of a road traffic accident where the vehicle had mounted the pavement and crashed. She only saw the vehicle at the time. 
you know, so she's walking past it thinking, oh dear, I wonder what's happened there. Gone on to the sports center, but she couldn't find her son there. Time passed, he didn't turn up, and she was starting to become quite upset and distressed. She overheard some people saying they heard that a 20-year-old man had been killed, who, you know, and her son at the time was 20. Um, after retrieving her phone in the locker room, she noticed that she had several missed calls and texts from her family asking about her son. Eventually, the police were notified by some of the staff members of the sports centre that they thought the mother was in the building, and that was when she was notified that her son had been killed in that accident which she had just passed minutes before. Um, we'll skip the waiting here, but th this was the case of Young versus McVean. Uh, quite a notorious case up here. Um, the inner house held that, seen as the pursuer was unaware of her son's involvement in the accident at the time that she came across the aftermath, she couldn't can make the connection between the accident and her son. So I suppose from that perspective, it wasn't sufficiently shocking. There wasn't a, s a sufficient connection in time and space uh, between witnessing the aftermath and the shock that came after it. Um, uh, for for those of you based in Scotland and know of Charles Hennessy, um, I know that he's he's still somewhat bitter about that decision, uh, as I found out the other day during a PI conference, and understandably so. Anyway, I hope you found that rather interesting. Uh, if not, please let me know, and I'll try and do better next time. Um, but we'll now move on to the actual decision of uh, Paul Paul Muir and Purchase. So. And again, we sort of keep a guessing game going here, unless you happen to have read the Paul decision in advance of watching this video or read a blog on it from another website. Um, you may want to maybe have a think about the facts again and uh, think to yourself, did this succeed? Did they succeed? So the main question arising from all three of these cases, um, as you'll have gathered from the facts as they were outlined, was how the authorities and secondary victims were to apply to clinical negligence claims where there's a delay between the negligent act or omission and the event um, which causes the injury or death to the primary victim. So the decision was reached by Sir Geoffrey Voss, Master of Rules. He basically, having gone through all the authorities that I've just gone through, he um, categorized secondary victim cases into, into three. Firstly, where the accident, injury or threatened injury to the primary victim happen at the same time. Secondly, where the negligence occurs sometime before the horrific event. And number three, where the negligence caused two distinct horrifying events separated in time. For example, Novo. Now I should highlight, and I perhaps forgot to mention this when discussing Novo before, that Lord Dyson's um, reasoning was very much a policy a decision. He's he's limited it to one event as opposed to two for the reasons provided. He doesn't want a situation where claimants come in about 10 years later because a negligent act from sometime before has ultimately caused that death or, or injury. Anyway, so but to, to, to the master of rules mind, or maybe I'll just refer to him as Sir Geoffrey Voss. To Sir Geoffrey Voss, 
even without looking at all the authorities which we have just discussed, he finds it difficult to see why a gap in time between the negligence and the horrifying event should actually affect the defendant's liability. Now, quite crucially, he highlights that what constitutes an event in the control mechanisms as outlined in Alcock were actually described by Lord Oliver as um, the event of injury to the primary victim. And that's quite crucial because if you if you think about all the decisions that have come before, they seem to have based event primarily on a negligent act or an accident. So again, going back to Novo, the mother suffered an accident at work. That was the horrifying event as far as Lord Dyson was concerned. Not the latter one, notwithstanding that the injury, death, was caused by the initial negligence. So to Sir Geoffrey Voss's mind, how event was defined by in Alcock by Lord Oliver meant that there requires to be physical proximity to the event of injury to the primary victim and a close temporal connection between the event of injury and the claimant's perception of it. So the conflict here comes up with respect to who, to the third requirement um, and how it's to be interpreted in clinical negligence cases. So this whole idea that it's got to come from an accident, that the event's got to be an accident, actually comes from Lord Wilberforce's statement in McLaughlin, uh, which I referred to briefly at the beginning, that the fact and consequence of a defendant's negligence must be close in space and time to the moment the claimant has caused nervous shock. So Sir Geoffrey Voss considered that if such principles are applied to a clinical negligence context, one would say that despite the event taking place some time after the negligent act, that one, the fact and consequence of the negligence was close in time and space to the moment when secondary victim was caused psychiatric injury, and two, the secondary victim was either personally present at the scene of the horrific event or accident, or was in the more or less immediate vicinity and witnessed the aftermath shortly afterwards. So whether this applied to the case in Paul, um, Paul Muir and Purchase, um, actually boiled down to what Novo decided. So as I said before, Lord Dyson held that there was no liability in that case because the claimant was not present uh, to witness the injury to the mother at the time of her accident, nor in the immediate aftermath of that accident. The gap between the first and second event, the latter of which um, the claimant did witness and was no doubt horrifying, um, three weeks later was fatal to the claim. So, as I say, Lord Dyson held that in the circumstances, in those circumstances, it would be going too far to find liability, and I've, and I've explained all that. But uh, notwithstanding that, it's quite clear that Sir Geoffrey Voss is a bit uneasy with how uh, the novel decision has was reached and its implications going forward. However, Sir Geoffrey Voss nonetheless felt bound by Novo and so was not prepared to basically um, determine whether the claimant succeeded in the claim. However, he felt that the question was important enough that 
it could go to the Supreme Court. And I believe um, that it's going to be heard in May next year. So essentially, the, the, the decision in Paul more or less boils down to um, Sir Geoffrey Voss saying that the event in the Alcock test is actually the event of injury, not the negligent act itself or the cause of, uh, excuse me, or the or an accident, for instance. It has to be in witnessing injury to that close tie of love and infection or witnessing death for that matter. That, it makes a lot of sense, but in the end, since that's, contradictory to the finding in Novo, which he felt bound by, he wasn't prepared to find in favour of the claimants here. So it's it's quite an interesting decision and um, could be a big one going forward, um, particularly for pursuers and claimants. What Paul demonstrates is a certain fallibility about the control mechanisms, which does not cater for those situations where the horrifying event happens after the negligent act. So, I mean, particularly for clinical negligence, anyone who's practiced in this area um, will know that the harm suffered by our clients often comes sometime down the line after the negligent act has actually occurred. For instance, if there's a, uh, so the, 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 there's a mistake during, a, during an operation, then sometimes there's a, there can be some time before the injury starts to manifest itself. It, it happens all the time. Um, likewise, if a GP fails to um, refer someone for a cancer diagnosis and there's a delay as a result, the negligent act is then, the harm comes later. So, as I've said before, secondary victim case law, or just the law generally, has been criticized as being unprincipled. And you can see why from, from the decisions that we've uh, discussed. Um, and much of the duty of care has been shaped by policy considerations as opposed to the usual questions of foreseeability and proximity. I mean, that, that comes into play, but it's, but it's ultimately limited by policy because in the end, the courts don't want the floodgates to open when it comes to, when it comes to claims. Is that justice? Well, depends on which side you're on, essentially. So Paul, to me, therefore, represents an opportunity for the Supreme Court to find some kind of principle to lay down, particularly in the context of modern society. I mean, in the end, Alcock was decided about 30 years ago. Uh, you know, a lot's changed since then. And um, given that the world's constantly connected, the likelihood of witnessing traumatic events on social media or FaceTime and also television, you know, 24-hour news feeds, BBC News, etc., um, or Sky News, not to give prominence to a particular news channel. Um, you know, seeing these things live is easier than ever. And it means that there probably needs to be a reconsideration of the duty of care. But keeping that in mind, and keeping in mind why Alcock was decided like it was, I don't see the Supreme Court being able to find some kind of principle um, to apply to these cases. As I say, Alcock, the, the finding in Alcock was uh, designed to limit the scope of claimants because it was apparent that it was reasonably foreseeable that friends and relatives, you know, you can have close friends, 
um, of those who were caught up in Hillsborough would suffer psychiatric injuries. It was such a horrible thing to have happened. Um, but to allow all claims to be uh, accepted would be opening the floodgates, as I say. And as I say, given that seeing such events is easier than ever now, I think um, the pool of potential claimants is theoretically increased. And I therefore think it's, I find it very difficult to see the Supreme Court deviating from the alcohol control mechanisms um, to do so maybe to burst the dam as opposed to opening the floodgates. So at the very least, they could, to my mind, uh, try and clarify some of the points that were raised in Paul. So if they're not prepared to lay down a new set of principles, they could at the very least clarify the law with respect to the clinical negligence claims uh, in secondary victims, um, particularly what an event is and whether the temporal connection with the claimant's psychiatric injury um, must be in witnessing the accident or negligent act or the injury, death, etc., to the primary victim. And um, I think looking at it plainly, as uh, Sir Geoffrey Voss highlighted in Paul, Lord Oliver in the end at Alcock actually said the event is the injury, not the accident. Uh, or the negligent act for that matter. That's, you know, that's a House of Lords decision. It's 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 the binding decision out of all of this, as I've said. Um, and I think to add a bit more meat to the bone to that uh, argument, I think it needs to be borne in mind that what is ultimately causing, or at least contributing the most to a psychiatric injury suffered by a claimant in these cases, uh, you know, what, what do you think it is in the end? Is it witnessing someone that you're close to being injured or killed, or is it the actual accident? You know, in the end, the control mechanisms, when you think about it, are partly premised on there being close ties of love and affection between, excuse me, they're partly premised on um, there being close ties of love and affection because it is recognized that it is reasonably foreseeable that someone would suffer psychiatric injury as a result of witnessing their loved one being hurt or killed in a horrifying manner. So there's, there's undoubtedly situations where the accident and negligent act happened to happen at the same time that the injury is sustained. But to me, it makes more sense from a causation perspective to say that the psychiatric harm is actually due to witnessing the injury to a loved one, not the accident. Although that in itself could be shocking. Um, but in that situation, I think it would allow for the appeals in Paul um, but it would at least prevent the difference in treatment, if you pardon the pun, between clinical negligence and accident cases. So, you know, we currently got the situation where if you witness an accident um, and suffer a psychiatric injury, then you're a secondary victim, but not if you witness someone dying, notwithstanding the negligent act was a while before. That To me, that's not very fair. And I think if you... If you, if you do limit it to witnessing the event of injury or death, I think that caters to both these clinical negligence cases and accident cases without broadening the scope beyond what the House of Lords had uh, intended in Alcock. Um, 
you know, and you'll have, you'll remember from the decisions that we've discussed that uh, there's a lot of talk about gradual assaults of the mind. So I think that emphasizes that the injury or death that the claimant witnesses has to be very sudden and unexpected. So, so that it's more or less falling in line with the jurisprudence of accident claims. Because in the end, these accidents happen very suddenly. It's not, you know, you wouldn't be a secondary victim if you could see a negligent act has caused something that's, I don't know, um, kind of going back to the example of Taylor v. Novo, if there's like a trolley that's um, maybe been nudged and it's maybe leaning over like the Tower of Pisa, you can see that it's probably going to fall. In Taylor v. Novo, it's obviously happened very suddenly. And as Lord Dyson said, if the daughter was there to see that sudden accident, she'd be a secondary victim. But say if it was the situation where you see the negligent act, it's it's clearly about to fall over, then it happens. That's not a sudden event. And I don't think um, I don't think you would be a secondary victim even if you saw that, because it's clear that's what was going to happen. So it's, it, as I say, it's just not sudden enough. Um, so I think... Again, for the purposes of um, keeping the uh, the Supreme Court kind of happy about not overly playing around with the Alcock control mechanisms, they should just say that the event in these clinical negligence cases has got to be the injury or death, and it, it, th- th- that's got to be that's got to happen very suddenly and unexpectedly. So, I mean, to, to give a somewhat morbid example, if you have a delayed diagnosis of cancer case, yes, there is a negligent act in failing to refer the, the, the deceased. But because you know it's cancer, you know it's gradually going to, well, you would, you would hope they'd survive, but most of the time it'll gradually lead to the death. Yes, it's undoubtedly shocking what happens, but it's gradual and it's to be expected in the end. It's not sudden. Um, you know, this, for instance, the situation in Paul where the father literally just collapses out of nothing, suffering a heart attack, that, that is shocking. And if they had no reason to think that before, that this would happen, then, you know, I think their secondary victim status there. And I think the same could be said for Paul Muir and, and uh, particularly Purchase. So, rant over in that respect but um it may be that the supreme court turns around and says this is really not for us it's for parliament to deal with and um funnily enough the scottish parliament were not too far from doing this about hmm, 18 years ago i think it was um the scottish law commission had published a report in 2004 recommending that a statutory framework be put in place for psychiatric injuries generally um among the recommendations uh, were the abolition of shock as the sole cause of uh, psychiatric injury. Uh, There was also the abolition of categorizing um, victims as primary and or secondary, or or secondary. (laughs) And uh, lastly, abolishing the Alcock criteria altogether and replacing it with the sole rule that the pursuer must have had a close relationship with the injured or dead person. Alas, these did not come into play, and so we missed... I guess, the opportunity to have a more principled basis for pursuing secondary victim claims up here anyway. Um, the idea was to keep it rather simple. And, you know, this is in the end, this is what the law of secondary victims uh, actually requires in the end. But 
we shall see how the Supreme Court um, uh, decides matters. Uh, I imagine it'll probably be a year, a year and a half before we really know. So until then, the law will remain in limbo. Um, but hopefully what I've outlined here um, will make you think about these cases going forward and uh, the justice of it all. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that was uh, informative and interesting, at least, and uh, apologies if it seemed a bit too long for, for anyone. But uh, as before, any questions, please get in touch. Um, any any uh, suggestions for the next topic, um, again, give me a shout. I mean, as a, as a sort of um, indicator of what we may be exploring in the next episode, um, I, uh, I believe we will look at consent, medical consent. So, which is always an interesting topic. So please join me again for that one and I'll see you next time. Head to our website, lndmedilaw.com for more information.